So first I would like to thank uh, Professor Tom Luke here of the chemistry department since I stole a lot of his slides. <laughs> so instead of me talking and you listening and then getting to the end, I'd like to actually have a dialogue per slide. Um, and we'll just get however far we get through the talk. Um, so let's begin with units. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with a 60-watt uh, light bulb and a watt is equal to a joule per second. And so throughout the talk, you'll see some joules and you'll see some watts. And they are the same if you take time into account. So a person burns about 120 watts, okay, over a 24-hour period, 10 megajoules of energy. A gallon of gasoline has 121 megajoules, million joules. And so a gallon of gasoline has the energy equivalent of about 10 people working for you for a day, okay? And so that is really enough to explain a great deal of the world politics, why we don't use domestic animals anymore, and why Saudi Arabia is our friend. Um, so if we speak uh, in terms of solar energy, what can you get from the sun? A uh, thousand watts per meter squared on a nice bright sunny day. Uh, one hour, 3.6 megajoules per square meter. So you can think of this in terms of people, but if you, you know, want to translate people energy into sunlight energy, there's a lot of energy there coming from the sunlight, but it's going to take some real estate, okay? It's a diffuse energy source, and we have to have something that captures that diffuse energy source. Questions on this slide? This one isn't meant to be thought-provoking. It's just kind of <laughs> an introduction. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be the equivalent of a human being in terms of this number of square meters? Oh, so 3.6 megajoules. So on a bright, sunny day, okay, basically three square meters will give you a person. So that's good, okay? Um, now, an issue is, the saying goes, you know, power after four if you do not store, <laughs> which is kind of cute, but uh, it's also very true. And so if you're going to have a means of collecting solar energy, you have to have something to store that energy when the sun goes down. So, one student asked me how <laughs> we got a picture of the world um, when it was all dark. Um, it's a satellite composite. And uh, you can look at the global energy consumption, and it's 15 terawatts, okay? That's trillion watts. And about a quarter of that is generated in the United States. 80% uh, comes from fossil fuel, 6% from nuclear. Most of that's just in a few countries like, um, uh, maybe I should go over here, I'll see it better. Um, but you have uh, a large amount, okay? You need 15 terawatts. So per day? Total, total, per year. Mm -hmm. yep. Excuse me, how much did you say was in the United States? 
It's about 25% of the world's consumption. Okay? Mm -hmm. Sure. And 80% of that is coming from fossil fuel use now. Is that China or Japan that's all bright on the Oh, yeah. So this is uh, China. <laughs> Japan. And uh, India. And actually, if you see a high-resolution picture of this, there's a bright dot right here, and what it is is fishing fleets. They, uh, I, I forget the catch, but they. Uh, <laughs> here's Puerto Rico. Yeah, so this is. Uh, <coughs> so if we're going to talk about energy, we sort of have to talk about what drives uh, what drives it. All right, and here is historic population growth. And um, it's difficult to uh, supply energy when the world population increases at that rate, um, except for a, a couple of different ways. Questions? So here, so here we begin to look at uh, some data, and this is the world primary energy use in terawatts, and it grows, and a couple of things drive that. One, world population growth, and two, uh, the energy each person uses per country, which is correlated with um, quality of life, um, industrialization. And the current energy mix globally, as you can see, is primarily coal, oil, and fossil fuel. And if you want to look at what renewables are in this chart, you can see that broken down into terawatts, renewable energies are 0.29 uh, terawatts, and as opposed to oil, which is maybe 15 times times that. <coughs> Projected for 2050 is 28 to 35 terawatts of energy. Okay? So... Um, I had a fascinating conversation with uh, uh, a member of parliament from Canada, and he said that if you're concerned about global warming and you just decided to turn off Canada, everybody in Canada just turned off everything, didn't use anything, and went back to the 15th century, uh, the growth of rate in China is sufficient that every five months they add a Canada. <laughs> So, yeah. So what percentage is that 0.29? I can't quite calculate it. Oh. The 12.8. Well, <laughs> probably about 0.2%. Um, typically, people display this on a logarithmic scale. And it really, you have to have a logarithmic scale to actually show the significance of renewable. Um, I'll have a couple more slides that break this out. But you can see it's extremely small. Amount. So here, so this is the atmospheric uh, levels of CO2, and if we start on the left-hand side, this is uh, this is what CO2 tells us, going back 600,000 years, uh, we're able to match it up kind of like tree rings almost um, with the ice cores 
And we know that this is what the CO2 levels do going back. And we know that we're here, and we know that business as usual, depending upon economic growth, will either put us up here or down here, somewhere very, very high. <coughs> and we also know from the ice cores that temperature and CO2 concentrations are extremely closely matched, again, going back hundreds of thousands of years. And I was thinking about this, and it occurred to me that, um, you know, there is a dialogue, uh, largely funded by the oil companies, is this a problem? And um, it seems to be a problem. Um, we spend a lot of money on problems that we think are problems. They're not really problems. We spend a trillion dollars a year on a combined military and uh, uh, stealth type people, CIA, in the anticipation of a problem, you know. And so we begin to look at this and say, well, is a problem coming? And it certainly appears to be coming. Um, but we, we have to look ahead. We have to look ahead a few years, which is which makes it difficult. So if you talk about energy, energy reserves, let's forget about CO2. If you, if you say energy reserves and resources, there's what we know. You know. We know. We know this oil is right there. And then there's oil that we think we can find somewhere. And so you have proven reserves and anticipated energy resources. And you can plot that and you can look at consumption rates, and you can say oil, oil as we know it, has something like a 30 to 50... It's a big fraction of 12 and a half terawatts, which oh, is yeah. what we use. Absolutely. So I'm trying to decide yeah. a bigger fraction. Yeah. But thanks. That's great. Yeah. I have but, a question. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. um, do you think there were many people or anybody that saw the problem with using... And using growing so much corn for ethanol that it would take out crops, you know, to be grown and cut down more trees and forests. Did yeah. anybody saw that before it came upon us? Well, yeah, I'd say it was political. It was a political driven. I mean, uh, they refer to uh, the uh, what's his name, Bob Dole. Bob Dole. <laughs> they refer to Bob Dole as the senator from Archer Daniel Midland. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think there really was uh, a rush, you know, a rush to get on board here. It, a lot of people do a lot of things to buy the votes of farmers. So. Did you see it, you think? It's obvious. I mean, basically, you have this population that increases by 90 million people per year, okay? And Chevron runs ads that say 90 million people per year. Is that a problem or a solution? And then they say, well, it's the solution because out of the 90 million people, there will be <coughs> one or two that, you know, get trained well enough to work in technical fields that might actually solve problems. But <laughs> I don't mean to be overly pessimistic. But, um, um, but yeah, I mean, when you grow it for food, you know, it's food that's not going someplace. When you grow it for fuel, it's not going for either food or it's not going back into the soil as nutrients. So then you get into the topsoil issue. So on this slide, if you look at 
what are we going to do? There's 600 terawatts um, of potential solar, okay? It's diffuse, it's spread out, um, there's, but, this is a big number. Okay. For the planet or just in our country? For the planet, yeah, globally. Yep. So from here, what I wanted to say is uh, if the, you know, CO2 is a problem, okay? It's a heat-trapping gas. Um, and if you say global population, quality of life, and you look at the growth rates, what it comes down to is we're going to need 20 to 30 terawatts by 2050, which is a lot more energy. And at least for today, okay, without any kind of government regulation or government tax, um, as you enter the market, you basically compete with fossil energy, and fossil energy is free, okay? So what do I mean by free? <laughs> so these are pictures of lakes. And so really when I say free, I say Mother Nature has provided for us lakes of, as you would say, latent energy reserves, okay? Uh, lakes of oil. There's lakes of oils scattered around the globe. There's lakes, the solid version of lakes, of coal scattered around the world. And so really all we have to do, this was an oil lake, we would put a pipe into it, we would drain it, we would filter it, we would ship it, we would tax it, and that's about what we pay for a gallon of gasoline, okay? Uh, $2. If I was to import lake water from China, appropriately filtered, uh, taxed and delivered, I'd probably pay two dollars a gallon for it. So, so, you know, there's this tremendous drive of it has to be cost efficient. You have to, if you're going to do solar, it has to be cost efficient. But you always get back to competing with free, which is a real challenge as we look to the future. Um, well, the sun is shining, and that seems to be, you know, on the same kind of thing. But I heard that you can get it at all times if you're out in space, because the sun is shining. Oh, sure. Okay, so, you know, and then it can be transported somehow to Earth. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's or, true. You know, somehow yeah. transmitted or right. carried, I don't know. So, is that possible? It's not free, because somebody would make to have to make these collectors in outer space, which would be expensive. Each shuttle launch, co each shuttle launch costs $500 million. Um, but you could, and people have discussed this, could you make you know, several square miles of solar collectors in space and then transmit the uh, energy in one form or another to, to, to the Earth? And... Um, the answer is yes, it could be done, but um, it is a cost-driven world, and uh, you would immediately run into issues of money. You, you've already talked about this. I'm wondering if it's in the next slide, that the hidden costs of oil. We're spending more in military oh. costs per barrel of oil in South America than the revenue that's produced from that oil. So, yeah. But because the costs are hidden in military budgets instead of direct subsidies yeah. like they would be to solar, 
it's difficult for the public to make that connection. Are you going to yeah. talk about that? You know, I am not. And I thought about putting a slide in here, but I didn't want to, uh, I don't know, you know, I didn't want to get into, um, uh, I didn't want to act like I was speaking disparagingly of many of the political trends in our country. But yes, um, I have seen estimates where basically the cost of the military that we spend on ensuring our oil delivery is equivalent to a dollar and a half a gallon of gas. Okay? And, and this is fully available in the web, okay? Um, um, you can find the military presence in the Middle East. And it's vast. I mean, it's just vast. We have a vast military presence in the Middle East to, you know, you could argue, well, are we over here for this reason or that reason, but we have this formidable presence in the Middle East. Um, okay, so uh, people have spoken of clean coal, and they do a great job advertising clean coal. And what does clean coal mean? Um, it's really easy to filter out the relatively easy to filter out the particulates from the smokestack, um, but it is not easy to do something with the CO2. And there's been discussion, and only discussion, could you take something, you know, could you somehow capture the carbon and sink it to the bottom of the ocean? Um, yeah, maybe we don't know. I mean, nobody knows how to do that, and it's unlikely. Um, to be able to do that with uh, minimal cost and if you have a 1 or 2% leak rate of the CO2 per year then you very quickly get all that CO2 back into the atmosphere and you haven't solved the problem. So this is, I meant this talk, let me just look at the time, I'm not checking my messages. Um, <laughs> okay, so we have light. And we would like to turn it into either a fuel, a chemical fuel that's transportable and portable, okay, like gasoline is, uh, or electricity. And electricity, we sort of know how to do, okay. Um, the fuels, uh, we really don't know how to, well, we have glimpses. We have glimmers of hopes of how we might do it. And um, I'll, I'll speak a little bit about, about both. Um, so, if you wanted to generate three terawatts, um, the size of that square depends upon how efficient your device is, okay? For less, less efficiency, bigger square. Um, is anybody from here? <laughs> A friend of mine says, I've been giving this talk for ten years, I've never met anybody from that square. <laughs>
couple of years, that they've invented a solar shield that is as large as a polo field, which I guess would be equivalent to a football field, but is as thin as a wrapper for uh, Nestle's chocolate, you know, those aluminum wrappers. And as I was uh, watching that, I had been reading an article, and I think it's this month's issue of Scientific American, that said that something that may positively affect climate change would be putting a solar shield. Oh, but as you point out, you know, the cost of these uh, satellites going up in the space is at least half off uh, trillion dollars. More, more probably being trillions to really get a double bang from that. And as I, I was considering those two media reports, it suddenly occurred to me, is it possible that a solution to uh, a possible partial solution both our climate uh, change problem and our solar collection problem might be a twofer. In other words, some kind of uh, uh, shield that also collects solar energy for In other words, something that may be two things. Sure. I mean, conceptually, what you said is absolutely correct. Okay? If uh, the planet was getting too much heat, in theory, you could put a shield up and ideally use that shield to take sunlight and put it into electricity. Um, again, you would run into uh, a cost issue. And so I guess what I would say is in the past, with fossil fuels, we have had a clear winner, okay? Clear winner. All you have to do is pump it up, dig it up, and it's free, and it's easily transported, it's safe to work with. We have a clear winner. And looking to the future... Um, we don't have a clear winner. And instead of a single approach, I think we're going to have to use a lot of different approaches. So, and this slide actually is, uh, sort of leans into this. And so this is basically, okay, we're, we're faced with a situation where we need to generate a lot of energy, ideally not from fossil fuels, and how are we going to do it? And then this is the, the, this is the material composition, the chemical composition of what you'll find in the Earth's crust, okay? So let's say that uranium oxide was a great catalyst. Uranium oxide is down here, and it is indeed a great catalyst for splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. The trouble with it is uranium, there's very little of it, little of it in the Earth's crust. And so if you want to uh, do something on a large scale, you've got to really work with the materials that are up here. Silicon, lots of silicon in the Earth's crust, iron, aluminum, these types of materials. But it's something that always kind of comes back in terms of um, how we're going to address the problem. So let me just speak a little bit about... Uh, photovoltaic devices which are used for sunlight into electricity. And um, so there's the first generation solar cells, which is silicon, okay? And if you were to buy a solar cell today, it's like 95% of the market is silicon, okay? Um, originally invented uh, or discovered in Bell Laboratories in 1950, okay? Um, with silicon, it requires very high purity materials that are expensive to make. 
So then the second generation with the amorphous silicon, which began to come on in the 1970s, mid-70s, uh, you can have um, amorphous silicon. It doesn't have to be so pure. It's easier to make. It's cheaper, but it's also lower efficiency. And then you can begin to get into other materials, um, like CAD telluride. Um, it's actually a ceramic. It's pretty good efficiency. You always have issues about, well, what's going to happen with the cadmium when it's done? Um, and then there's the third generation, which is to say, um, what would we like? Or what are we working on? Or what might we see in the next decade? Um, you know, that, the size of that square, we really don't want a square that big. We would really like to reduce the size of that square with some very efficient solar cells um, that hopefully don't cost much. So let me just show this slide. And uh, this is maximum efficiency uh, versus time, okay, in terms of reported laboratory devices for solar cell efficiency. And there's a lot of information on this slide that's not actually there. Um, but here's time, 75 to 2005. So it's 30 years. And so the point of this is that if we're really going to develop uh, next generation solar cells, uh, we should start now, okay? in a significant fashion because it's going to take us probably a good while to uh, really get going here. Um, another interesting uh, point is the people that are way up here, <coughs> Spectrolab, Spectrolab, NREL, Spectrolab, um, well, surprisingly, these people don't have to worry about money. They are a defense uh, spin-off and they make solar cells for space satellites. And they have had a lot of money, and they've been driving, as you can see, a, a tremendous growth in solar cell efficiency. Um, they are now, in fact, up to 45% efficiency, which is remarkable, but it is extremely expensive. So I work on solar cells that are down here, uh, dominated by Michael Gretzel in the University of Luzon, and down here where you basically have polymers. I mean, ultimately what you would really like is something as cheap as a polymer film that you can squeegee together and make yourself an efficient solar cell. Questions or? Well, I had a question about efficiency. We were taking a trip the other last month and uh, Bias drove these three immense tractor trailers with the three blades for a solar I mean, for a wind-driven oh, generator. Yeah. I could not believe how immense yeah. those were. And the three of them went by. But I realized when I saw them that everything in there was made with fossil fuels. Right. The towers, the wires, the generators, these blades. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have anything that really gives back as much energy as we put into any yeah. of this stuff? Well, that's a great question to ask. And the answer is yes. Um, uh, I don't know what the payback is on those wind generators, but they are actually made of an epoxy glass resin, okay, it's on a metal post, and they generate now uh, about five megawatts of energy, and so I think the payback is relatively quick on those. 
Um, when we started out making the silicon solar cells, they were extremely uh, difficult to make, very high purity, expensive to make, and it was more or less, you never got the energy back. Um, but now people have learned and it's cheaper and it's easier and so you can get the energy back in a couple of years. Um, but that is a very, um, everything is built of something and our whole society is now based upon fossil fuels and so when you start saying, well, I'm going to make this stuff, there's already an additional energy investment in whatever it is you make. So that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. How does the systems compare to something like a solar farm using mirrors and then the turbine? Oh, yeah, that's another good question. Um, there's different approaches, okay? You know, it's, like I said, it's a diffuse field. You can put the solar cells on the roof of your house. That's one approach. Uh, another approach is to go down in the Mojave Desert and put up uh, concentrators, okay, where we collect all the sunlight and then we'll use that to drive a turbine or drive, you know, some sort of a motor that generates power. And um, they've built a couple and after a while they've turned them off. Um, typically, why did they turn them off? Um, again, they're competing against three and two. Uh, it always seems to be kind of a materials problem, okay? Um, in the sense of these very high temperature reactors where all the sunlight is coming into. Um, actually, let me contradict what I just said. There's concentrators and concentrators, and people haven't known what's going to be the winning approach. And so in the past, they said, well, gee, we'll get something that's 3,000 degrees hot, and we'll you know, drive a huge engine with it. Now people have backed off and they said, let's go something in between. We'll have a series of collectors. We'll take it up to like 500 degrees Celsius just from sunlight. And now when you kind of get into 500 degrees Celsius, there's a lot of interesting chemistry that you can begin to do, okay? You can't split water directly, but you can play some chemical tricks where you can get the hydrogen and get the oxygen out. Um, so... So, yeah, I, I would say it's kind of a pendulum. You know, there's the very spread out, very concentrated, and people are beginning to find something in between is good. In response to the lady's question about getting the payback, getting the energy back that it took to make the solar cell, mm -hmm. you said some, some of the expensive ones, you never get it back. And then it's in the past, years, yeah. In the past, yeah. Do you mean actual energy payback, or do you mean the equivalent monetary cost of oh. the energy that you get? <laughs> I was thinking energy. I had not, I'm just thinking watts, okay? <laughs> watts or joules. So, because, I mean, I, I have a slide that's coming up that shows you how a silicon solar cell is made. You know, silicon is refined at 1,400 degrees Celsius, okay? And it comes out in a great big column and then you have to slice it and then you have to put the contacts on it and you have to package it and so it, it all takes energy yeah so you really are talking energy yeah thank you well mm -hmm. yep so this um, so the previous slide talked about generation one generation two and then generation three where hopefully people can begin to figure out something of very high efficiency solar cells. So, let's say I make a solar cell, 
a square meter of it and I want to put it on my roof, okay? It's going to cost me just the packaging, you know, the frame, the mounting, the ceiling, the glass, okay? It's going to cost about $80 per square meter. So, $80 per square meter, and that will drive a cost per watt, okay? You can say, well, heck, if I want a watt of power, I can just, you know, turn on a light bulb and somebody burns some coal somewhere, and it's cheap, okay? You know, this is half a dollar per peak watt. So the point is, is given this starting, this is the ante to the poker game, $80 per square meter. So if I have a generation one or a generation two efficiency solar cell, you know, silicon, then I never become competitive with fossil fuels, okay? Um, and again, I will never become competitive with fossil fuels because as the price of fossil fuel goes up, the cost of the ante here, the frames, the metals, the glass, all of that goes up too. So government regulation could drive it or tax subsidies could drive it, but from a purely market approach, I am never going to beat fossil fuels unless I have a new technology over here, um, you know, region three, where I suddenly get some tremendous efficiencies, 40 to 60% out of my devices like they are doing for the military space satellites, but we need to figure out how to do that really cheaply. Yes, sir? Uh, that's $80 per square meter, I consider, right? Yeah. I don't really get that because I thought that the average price of uh, watts per is about 4 to $8 dollars per watt. So how do we relate that on the percent efficiency per square meter at $80? Could you repeat it into the mic, Hold the please? mic. Oh, sorry, okay. The price of $80 per square meter. Yeah. I'm not sure how, how we get there because the average price on, on solar panels and you know, the cell is about four to eight dollars per watt. So I don't see a relationship between the watt over here and the eight dollars per meter. Yeah, this does not include the solar cell. So okay, this is just the glass, the metal, the plastic sealant, the mounting brackets. Yeah. Okay, all right, okay. All right. No installation though. No one. All right, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So if you wanted to put solar cells on your roof, it would cost this much just for the frame and then whatever solar cell you put in. So let me just speak a little bit then about um, you know, the next generation and, and uh, some of the technical issues briefly. Um, so this is the solar spectrum, okay? And, and what this is, if you haven't seen this before, is light comes through the atmosphere, and we measure it here at the surface, and you can look at the amount that you get per wavelength, okay? And so, okay. Um, and so when we speak of the 1,000 watts per meter squared, what I'm saying is this whole envelope. You integrate this envelope, and there's your 1,000 watts per meter squared. When we make a semiconductor, I'll go over here for a while, uh, when we make a semiconductor, it has an energy band, and each energy band correlates to a particular wavelength, okay? And so what happens is the band has to correlate with the energy. If the band gap is too large, 
you never collect the energy. And if the band gap is too small, then all the excess energy just goes into heat and it's wasted. Okay, or it's not collected. And so this is really what's been limiting and still, this is still the game in terms of capturing energy. We have to design materials that have a particular uh, energy spectrum so that it somehow matches the solar spectrum when it reaches Earth. Okay? Um, and so there's a whole potpourri of uh, solar cells that you can buy. Um, this is very interesting. They take cylindrical glass and then on the inside they put, um, this is SIGs, cadmium, indium, gallium, selenium. Uh, and then they put these inside these round pipes and so then these round pipes are just they're extremely easy to install, okay? So the installation costs go down, and then they work at any angle of the sun, and they're used a lot in Florida because it's very resistant to high, uh, high wind. These are some silicon solar cells. Depending upon uh, the particular application, you can, in fact, make them on flexible substrates, and so the idea is that you can have actually a conformal coating uh, maybe over the building. And then this is what a very high efficiency solar cell would look like in cross-section. Okay, it's one type of material, another type of material, another type of material, another type of material, another type of material, all put down with atomic level precision. It's extremely expensive, okay? But at least as of today, this kind of precise... Um, Film deposition is what's required to get a high efficiency device. So I can go through these slides a little bit quickly, but if you haven't seen it, this is uh, how a crystalline silicon solar cell is made. Um, you have a seed crystal. This is a huge reactor furnace, all at 1400 degrees Celsius, and this spins and you basically draw a silicon crystal out of the uh, boule, as it's called. And um, a lot of silicon, but you have to really purify it and grow it very carefully in order to get a useful device, okay? So this is 95% of the market, silicon solar cells. Um, and this is what I work on, and the idea here is if you would really like to be able to make um, scale, volume, manufacture of low energy solar cells, you basically just have some roll-to-roll -roll coders and they go in here into some sort of solution and voila, you have um, a solar cell. So I was at a meeting yesterday and I was informed that there's now a company that has achieved 6% efficiency with this type of a device. And that's a tremendous, that's a tremendous accomplishment because basically it's just, uh, uh, it's like saran wrap, okay? Different types of saran wrap that you're putting together and making a solar cell. So this, this represents really kind of a conventional silicon solar cell, okay? It has to be really uh, pure, okay? Because it takes a considerable distance to absorb the light, 
and then you have the electrons that you've generated, and you have to get the electrons out. And if there's impurities in there, the electrons don't get out. And so this is another approach. Um, these types of materials, polycrystalline and amorphous, are much easier to make. They're much lower cost, but you have to sort of play tricks with the geometry of the materials to get the, to get the energy out. And there's been a lot of interest, a lot of uh, promise, a lot of uh, research looking at uh, nanoarchitecture materials. Um, and what this shows is basically um, particle size versus percentage of the atoms on the surface. And what you begin to find is that bulk materials, we don't begin to find, we know, bulk materials behave very differently than surface. When everything becomes a surface, um, you get very different behaviors, and really a lot of the nanotechnology push in solar cells is just simply to say, okay, I have a material, it's all surface, can we get interesting properties out of it? So I have uh, two slides about uh, some of our own research work here in this field. And uh, what we make is we basically start off with a sheet of metal, in this case titanium, and you can grow these columns. Okay, very easy to grow these columns. And the power of this structure is you have a tremendous surface area. You want to capture light. It takes you have to have some finite surface, some finite volume to capture light. So the light comes down in here from the top, and you capture light in this way, which is great because we can make these very long. And then you separate the charge, or you take a photon, and you generate an electron and its counterpart, and they separate this way, okay? So you've actually now changed... That's not how silicon solar cells work, okay? Light absorption and charge transfer is in the same direction. And now we come along and we say, okay, we're going to have light absorption here. We're going to have the charge separation here. And you begin to see uh, opportunities by which you can make, you know, new devices. And so, in this case, so this is what it would look like. You take these interesting pipes, they're basically little nanotubes and you make your device and you get power up okay um, this slide shows the solar cell 4% efficient um, we've gone up to about 8 but it's there's a lot of devils in the detail you know it goes back to that plot showing 30 years of research to go from low to high and that's really where we are we're very much at the beginning where we begin to look at a lot of uh, issues um, associated with making these devices. Five minutes. Oh, okay. So let me go through, I got five minutes here, let me go through the strategy in terms of that's electricity. What can we do about a fuel? So 
So there's been much discussion about a hydrogen economy um, and why you would like a hydrogen economy is hydrogen is potentially renewable. Uh, unfortunately, today we get 96% of our fossil fuel from methane. So having the hydrogen bus going around campus doesn't really help us because largely all of our hydrogen is coming from uh, methane. So we... A variety of people, this should be a movie, yep. so I hope you can see this, but what you're actually seeing here is hydrogen bubbles coming out. You're shining light on a surface, and the light is generating an electron hole, and you're splitting the water molecule. And so what you're actually seeing is hydrogen bubbles come out from uh, a beaker of water, um, that's great. Okay, so if you could take sunlight and turn it into hydrogen, then you would have a portable fuel. Um, this has been known since 1972, uh, but it's never progressed out of the laboratory just simply because um, it's challenging. Okay, um, the electron hole pair that are splitting water are just as happy destroying the material as opposed to splitting the water. And so there's been a lot of research in terms of coming up with different materials on this. Let me get through this slide and then I'm happy to call it that, okay? And so then finally, now I want to go back. I don't want the movie. So we have electricity, we have fuel how we know to do it today, okay? We have a semiconductor, we have a metal, hydrogen, oxygen comes off. But what we would really like is to emulate Mother Nature in photosynthesis. Um, easier said than done, but this is what I'd like to end, end the talk on, not the movie, is here. <coughs> So a, a group of uh, researchers around the world, my research group is one of them, are making devices where it doesn't look like a leaf, but it acts like a leaf, okay? A leaf is immersed in CO2 and sunlight, and it splits the water molecule, and it takes CO2, and it makes a sugar, okay? It makes a fuel that it can store. And so what we're doing is we would like the same sort of structure, and that's what this is, where we immerse it in water and sunlight, and we generate a fuel, and in this case, hydrogen. And this is just a slide on some of our research where we're showing um, one type of material, another type of material. Um, they complement each other, and if you put light on them, they generate current which you can then turn into hydrogen, and uh, it's great. It's absolutely great. Um, the drawback with this is uh, we're now only as efficient as a leaf, okay? Uh, laboratory work has a photoconversion efficiency, sunlight to chemical fuel, half a percent. Um, <laughs> we want that to be 50%, and, uh, and that's what we're working on, and... Uh, <laughs> With that, I'll stop talking. <laughs> 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 <laughs>